Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 145. On today's show, we talk about ancient social networks, the first people on the Falkland Islands, and one of the largest flora mosaics. Let's dig a little deeper, but not below that beautiful floor. <laughs> Welcome to the show, everybody. How you doing? Hello. So I want to start real quick because I got an email this morning. And if you're listening to this in semi real time and you get our newsletter, I want to let you know that I've got a new computer on order for the end of November 2021 because <laughs> the one I'm using now is the 2017 MacBook Pro, which is plagued with the bad <laughs> keyboard design that Apple did for one year. And it doubles keys up and all kinds of stuff. So when it does that, autocorrect looks at my double O's and E's and stuff like that and says, what word is he trying to do? So the newsletter that went out Friday as you're listening to this, was not your daily dues of archaeology podcast. It's dose. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody emailed me and said, your daily dues. It said dose is spelled wrong. <laughs> it's your daily dues. <laughs> if you don't subscribe to our newsletter, go to arcpodnet.com and just scroll down the page a little bit. If you haven't been there in a while, I think it's a 30 days for your URL and you'll see a little pop up and just enter your email address and you'll be part of our newsletter. And you just right now, all we send out is a weekly hit of all the shows that were out there. So you can see what you missed if you didn't listen to everything and see what you want to go see. So, okay, we've got three articles on tap for you today. The first one 
is, you know, basically Facebook for the Indus Valley. No, it's really not. Um, it's called Rediscovering the Ancient Social Networks and Industries of Indus Civilization Villages. And um, they're just putting buzzwords in there, to be honest. Rediscovering. Yeah. Well, yeah. social networks. Yeah. 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 So anyway, this is kind of cool. And there's actually in our show notes, there's uh, a few articles for this one, not just the paper that we're about to read, but one of the original papers about this from Science Direct. And then this project that it's referencing called the Two Rains Project, which is really cool. We'll talk about that in a second. But this site was an excavation from sites in what's called Haryana in Northwest India, as, like I said, part of a project called the Two Rains Project. Mm-hmm. The link for the Two Range Project is, again, in the notes, but what they're wondering with this project is, does climate change cause collapse? And when they, they collapse of, like, civilizations right. or... And a collapse of a civilization could be, you know, started with, like, the collapse of the economy, the collapse of, you know, this, the collapse of that. So um, does climate change have an effect on that? And the two rains in this case are the dynamics of winter and summer rainfall systems. Oh, that's yeah. really cool. Because they have monsoon systems in this area. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those areas of the world that gets that. Mm-hmm. And they're very distinct. It's like... What were we watching a movie the other day? And the person was like, oh, we'll be there when the rains come. I was so irritated by that. But like in <laughs> certain places, that's actually true. Like you can, it's like on the calendar. <laughs> I think I think what you were really irritated about was it was when the snow falls. Oh. And it's like the snow could fall like anytime. Like literally anytime. Like after November 1st, like anytime, Any, right? Literally anytime. Like when are you actually going to be here? Yeah. Give me a date. Anyway. In places where they have monsoons, it is pretty predictable, and you can just tell when it's going to happen. I mean, you don't know the date it's going to happen, but the everything starts to change about mm-hmm. the air and everything. It's just like, all right, well, the rains are coming. So yeah. We better prepare for like that. a full environmental change. Yeah, and rain is pretty severe when it happens. Like yeah. monsoon, that word is just like... Gives you images of torrential downpour, so and it's real, right? Like that's oh, yeah. really what's happening, yeah, just totally. the whole time. So, using those two concepts of of the two rains and and looking back in time at how these systems interact with societies and you know all kinds of different things, they're digging up archaeology sites and doing other analysis, and it's a full thing. It's just archaeology is a part of this for this two rains project. So go check that out for sure. So if they're trying to figure out how climate change might have affected the collapse of these societies where does this like social network and industry stuff come in it's kind of a side thing as a you know they they excavated this site as a result of this project they're like hey let's do this you know it's funded by people who are funding this project which are the european research council mm-hmm. and it's a collaboration between cambridge university and banyaras hindu university and Anyway, they just happened to be here, and I feel like what they found kind of led them to some different questions. Okay. so like, that's where this comes in. Okay. So, like, the broader yeah. question was the climate change stuff, yeah. and then this ancient social network thing sort of came out of it. Pretty much. Pretty much. Okay. So, what they studied in a number of sites in this area was everyday pottery vessels, not mm-hmm. like ceremonial pottery vessels, not just like the stuff you eat with every day. Yeah, you know, your special. bowls and your plates, whatever they had. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they had bowls and plates. They probably did. But, you know, whatever. Sure. Whatever their version of a <laughs> yeah. bowl and a plate was. <laughs> exactly. And this is all in the third millennium BC. It's looking at those pottery vessels and looking at how the people in this in the Indus Valley developed and adopted unique techniques to make these things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got a, a handful of different sites here that we're talking about with different styles of pottery. And the question that came about when discovering all these things was without 
things we know today, like books or internet, basically just written language uh, and and vocal passed down, you know, folklore. What is that called? Oral traditions. Oral, yeah. Uh-huh. And how did these ideas get passed down? Did they get passed down? Right. You know, how long did they last? Did they did they even care about passing these ideas down or were they rediscovered, you know, many times as mm-hmm. different potters came into play? So Dr. Alessandro, you know, there's a double C there. Is it Cacciarelli? Yeah. Dr. Alessandro Cacciarelli, the lead author on this paper. He says they weren't, again, just looking at how was the pottery made, but how was that knowledge passed on? How were Mm -hmm. those skills passed on over the centuries? And that's what he's calling a social network. It's the ability for this network, if you will, to, I guess pass down this knowledge you know mm-hmm. it's not just and in social network is like it could be even as simple as like a small family unit like yeah you're, totally you've got a family member who's making pottery they teach the younger ones the younger ones grow up making that kind of pottery they teach the younger ones blah 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 you mm-hmm. know it's passed down that's in a sense a social network but it's not just a family social network it's also a community social network are other people in the village doing the same thing yeah you know? so i have kind of a cool historical story about that and mm-hmm. i don't know if it would play into what these people were doing but it's just an example of how we see it historically so when i was doing the historical yarns podcast we were looking when you were doing it well like, we do i mean someday we want to do another season but it's just about minds getting our getting our lives together so anyway maybe someday but one of the cool things that we learned when we were researching that podcast was that the way that that women who were the primary knitters in these villages and i think it was the shetland villages but it might have been the estonian ones i can't remember off the top of my head but the the way they would pass the knowledge around to the different villages and like from family member to family member and just keep it going through the generations. And this is well documented through like the 1800s and early 1900s mm-hmm. was they had these sampler pieces and each woman had her own sampler piece and she would put her stitches on there, anything she created and then anything she learned from other people. And then the way they would learn was by getting together and sharing these sampler pieces amongst each other and be like, Oh, look at that technique you did there. I want to know about that. And then she would add the one who wanted to know about it would add to her sampler piece, what she learned by looking at the other woman's sampler piece. Mm -hmm. So it created this like social network amongst the women of how they shared these techniques and ideas. So you could totally see something like that happening at any point in any human village or history or anywhere. Really? I wonder if that goes with our, or I guess if that evolved into our modern concept of like keeping up with the Joneses, you know what I mean? Oh my God, totally. (laughs) That's, that's more of a social competition. Yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of the same thing. You know, you're, you're, if you're in a neighborhood of, if you're in a young neighborhood where everybody's got kids of the same age and this neighbor gets a trampoline. Oh Yeah. You know, something, I'm not going to say like a pool, unless you're like a rich neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. I want a pool. Okay. <laughs> but uh, that's like $20,000. But a trampoline $20. is like the perfect example. A trampoline, right? So they get a trampoline and all of a sudden, you know, by next summer, everybody in the neighborhood has a trampoline. Right. Yeah. Or all the kids are dying on one trampoline. Either way, <laughs> you know, no, that's terrible well, to say. Trampolines much, are pretty safe these days. Yeah. As you say, they're much safer now than they were back when <laughs> yeah. we were kids. But <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Just the whole fly off into the bushes thing. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So anyway, that's probably along the same lines. And, yeah. and I would imagine... We are only able to look at the material record when we study these kinds of things. But those types of social networks had to have existed. Mm -hmm. You know, different techniques and styles of of building your house, of just going out hunting. You know, somebody 
somebody was the first one to invent a hunting blind and say, I'm not just going to walk around on the, the open plain and try to kill something. I'm going to construct this little Stack shelter rocks and, and, yeah. Yeah, and hide, yeah. you know, and wait for them to come to me. For sure. You know, that that came about and, and was passed down because people were watching them do it. And that's a version of a social network. Yeah. Yeah. Human innovation, like. I don't I don't think people tend to just keep that kind of stuff to themselves. I think yeah. they share the technology, the ideas, all that kind of stuff. Now, yeah. when you get into this artisan thing with the pottery, it might stay within like one family group or whatever if they're trying to like hoard their techniques. Well, that's where we come down to what one of the conclusions of the paper was. Uh-huh. So reverse engineering the pottery that they did find, they came up with different techniques for actually constructing the pottery, uh-huh. not just design and things like that. Uh, even down to the types of so-called potter's wheels that they would oh, use to okay. make these things sometimes. Yeah. And they concluded that whilst communities of ceramic makers lived in the same regions and sometimes the same settlements, different traditions did in fact emerge, but were sustained over centuries in some cases. Right. And the goal seemed to be, when that's the case, to almost make a statement of identity mm. based on that type of pottery making technique and and the aspects of that pottery. Right. So, so yeah, in a sense, holding on to it from a community standpoint, but then other communities might see that, but not necessarily want to copy it because they've got their own thing going on. It's like, hey, you know, you know, our stuff is here and yeah. your stuff is there. And this is, again, everyday pottery. Right, right. And it's it makes me think. Pride has been a thing of humans for a really long time. Mm-hmm. It's just you have your thing, you have your, you know, whatever whatever your deal is. You're you're looking at that and 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 want other people to see it and mm-hmm. be, you know, and, and look at it and say, ooh, look at them, right? Yeah. And when you don't have stuff like look at my shiny new car or my huge house or my <laughs> whatever, then you have stuff like your everyday pottery that you have to make and yeah. stuff like that. But I could also see it like these different family groups or villages or however many people were involved would like really specialize in one one thing and just get really, really good at it too, right? Like maybe, you know, from the village over by the river, they make these amazing water jugs. Like mm-hmm. they are killer at water jug creation. They have a special wheel they use to do it. So where everybody gets their water jugs from this village. Yeah. But then the village over by the mountain, like they make the most perfect bowls you've ever seen in your life. It's perfect yeah. for eating soup out of or whatever. So everybody goes and gets their bowls from, <laughs> from village by the mountain, you know? So like mm-hmm. I could see that kind of specialization happening and it is a point of pride, obviously to, to make, the best of something and then really specialize in that. But it also like from a, a function standpoint, it makes sense to have different groups specializing in different things and, and doing it really well. Now, if it's decoration, that's a different thing because if it's decoration, then that is really just personal preference that comes into play there. But if it's function, then mm-hmm. anyway, I'd be interested to learn more about, about that. Yeah. Well, where this intersected with the two rains project is it showed that there was Diversity and yet variability in practices in ancient South Asia, mm-hmm. um, where where this was happening in the Indus Valley, which the researchers believe, and again, there's probably a lot more detail in the actual paper, but researchers believe that made the populations well-suited to actually coping with changing environmental conditions. So as climate change is happening, this... I guess clinging on to a, a knowledge base and a tradition of doing something in a certain way and having that identity helps you kind of anchor yourself. Oh, and sure. As things are 
things are changing a little bit chaotically around you. I mean, climate change doesn't happen in like a summer, uh-huh. but there could be some bigger things like maybe maybe the monsoons over the course of a few years got way worse or something like that. Or climate change doesn't necessarily mean everything gets bad too, depending on what time of the world that you're in. Sometimes things are just getting more calm as you're descending into a, a period of inactivity. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the variability of climate change. So Yeah. Yeah, I wonder like what kind of trade was truly going on in these areas yeah. because if like you said the monsoon got really really bad and it affected the ability to get food and harvest and even like mm-hmm. whatever animal husbandry type stuff that they had going on. Yeah. I wonder if they could made up that could have made up the difference by trading the specialized pots and whatever that they were creating, right. if they were able to use the trade to make up the difference that the monsoon might have caused. Yeah, I don't know. Sounds like making your own everyday pottery back then was like constructing your own lightsaber. Like it's really uh, like you got to just nobody can do that for you. You just <laughs> you have to make your own lightsaber. Like I'm right, just saying. right. Okay. Yes. So it was all within. I see one. you've constructed a new bowl here. <laughs> oh my god, that's very nice. Okay. You're so special. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, we're going to go from there all the way over to the Falkland Islands in uh, the, what is that, Southeast Pacific? Yeah, yeah, something like that, yep. And we're going to talk about early prehistoric human activity there, which we didn't know existed. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code T-A-S. Hey, podcast fans. I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. Welcome back to episode 145 of the Archaeology Show. And as I said, we're going over to the Falkland Islands and lots of stuff has happened at the Falkland Islands, but they were first, let's give the current version of history. Okay. They were first (laughs) discovered in the 1600s. And so this is the white person version of history, right? This is the, this white is the, European version. Well, this is the version of history, the only one that we've known up until this point. There was no native version of this history that okay. we're aware of, right? Nobody right. wrote anything down. But British navigator John Strong was, up until recently, the first European, or the first person we thought, to set foot on one of the Falkland Islands in 1690. Okay. Okay. That's where we're at. And then, you know, other people came after that. There was actually settlements there, all kinds of stuff. So we'll talk about that in a minute. So there weren't even, when he first got to the islands, he didn't even find Nobody any hints of any no. any native activities, these indigenous are, activities. These are pretty barren, like, small islands. Okay. Like, there was nobody there. Yeah. So 
the University of Maine did a study that seems to contradict that. And again, interesting thing is this study was led and and uh, when I was taking the notes on these articles, I actually didn't even make this connection until just now because mm-hmm. now we're reading them together. When I take notes on these things, it's like I might read one one day and one like three days later. Right. So, but the University of Maine Climate Change Institute was oh. the actual ones that were leading the investigation, and they were studying the effects of past climate change on prehistoric peoples. And for some reason, they're in the Falkland Islands trying to find out if there's a prehistoric human presence. Okay. So they specifically went there to do an archaeological project to find out if there were prehistoric people in the Falkland Islands. There must have been some hints or something something to to make them think that maybe they were there. And also, why do they care from a climate change standpoint? Like, I'm not really sure about that. We don't have access yeah. to the original paper in this case. Yeah, so. because like with such small islands like this, yeah, you there's a lot of reasons why people would come and then leave or not stay or just not survive. Right. Because they're tiny islands and it's hard to support yourself in a small space. Yeah. So the interesting thing is they found evidence of people prior to Europeans. Mm-hmm. But it's not like super great evidence. Oh. And that's that's kind of an issue that we go into. They collected small animal bones. They have charcoal records. Uh, there's peat, peat bogs there. And mm-hmm. they have charcoal records going back 8,000 years. And because things just burn. Charcoal doesn't mean people. Right, so right. There's other evidence that they collected as well. They tried examining all of this evidence basically for signs of human activity. Mm-hmm. You know, is there something we can look at of this thing here, you know, like cut marks on an animal bone right. or something like that? Is there any sign that this was not something not natural here? So one sign in the within the 8000 year charcoal record that they found and imagine this charcoal record as like a core sample yeah. where you're looking at really kind of the amount. Obviously, they dated the charcoal so they know when these things happened. They, they carbon dated the charcoal. Mm-hmm. But they're looking more at the quantity of charcoal mm-hmm. in this in this peat bog record and, and what's going on there. And they showed signs of increased fire activity in 150 CE, so mm-hmm. the common era, and then abrupt spikes in, not, not just increased, but abrupt spikes in 1410 and 1770. And the 1771 corresponds with the first European settlement. Oh, interesting. So that first European settlement in 1770 was like, this is what it looks like when people come here and start burning right, a lot, right? Right, right? And we've got the same thing in 1410. Interesting. So, and possibly the same thing in 150. And I see what you say about it being kind of shaky evidence, though, because there could have just been a really active fire season, right? That, yeah. That, or where they took the core samples from. Like, I would love to know how many different samples they took to get to this date like was it just one really good core sample or did they have many across the whole island or site or whatever yeah in the south pacific's like pretty well known for its storm systems yeah and these uh you know lightning yeah could just every every year could start fires so yeah i wouldn't yeah i'm just i'm interested in in learning more about i guess what they were looking at was the the dramatic increases in it mm-hmm. it, it seemed less than natural. Yeah, that's yeah. what they were looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why they corresponded that one with the with the European settlement, which was easily visible in the charcoal record, so to speak. Uh, another thing that they found were uh, was a stone projectile point, which seems pretty yeah, clear, right? That is pretty clear. Uh, unless I mean, it's no, it's not inconceivable that European explorers were actually making projectile points because they would have come in contact with that stuff, and people are interested in things. Yeah, they could have. Yeah, they could have picked some up from a different island that they were on, where there were natives that they traded, and right. you know, there's a lot of reasons why they could have brought one. But. A lot of reasons why something could have been there, but mm-hmm. that's more than likely 
unlikely. What's more likely is that somebody brought that there. The point they didn't have a lot of information about, but they said it's a style that was used for the past thousand years or so in South America. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like if somebody were find an Elko projectile point here in Nevada. Not here. We're not in Nevada. We're in Florida. But in Nevada... <laughs> Elko points were used for a really long yeah, time. Like they, that just doesn't nail it down too it much. It almost tells you nothing at this point about <laughs> yeah. the prehistory when you find an Elko point. Yeah, know? it's like, a pretty wide swath of time. Yeah, I mean it does narrow it down to that wide swath of time. Yeah, but yeah. within that, you're not doing too well. So there's that, and I guess it wasn't found in association with something that really could be dated because right. you can't really date stone projectile points. Right. And one other thing is that point was found near some sea lion and penguin bones which have been known to be food sources, of right. course. So again, no, no indication on those that they were affected by humans directly. But the bones were heaped in discrete piles at one site that they found. I, guess, I don't think it was in association with the project point. That was a little bit unclear. Uh-huh. But in an excavation standpoint, they did find what seemed like disarticulated bones heaped Piled into up. piles. And that is kind of a, a human thing. Yeah, you know? I suppose because if it were animal activity, they don't tend to. Why would they pile? They don't up? pile bones up, yeah. unless it happens by accident, I guess. Yeah, but that does seem a little tenuous. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, yeah, the lead researcher, uh, Kit Hamley, uh, she thinks that these piles of bones indicate human activity. That's like her. She's really latching onto that. Yeah, you know, as a thing, and she's probably right. So, yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. So. Most of this evidence that they found, when you take it all together, points to people from South America traveling to the Falkland Islands between about 1275 CE and 1420 CE. And there is some evidence for dates prior to that, of course, but there's more solid evidence for something in that time range. Mm -hmm. And they don't think that these were long-term stays. There's no evidence of like long-term occupation. There's none of the stuff that associates long-term occupation. They think that these people, I mean, and people in South America and honestly, the islands of the um, South Pacific, they were like well-known sea navigators. You know, they didn't have like tall ships and sails. Well, they may have had rudimentary sails. I don't actually know much about their seafaring technology. Yeah. They had like canoes and big boats, but they were really good at this on the sea. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of them died on the sea too, but they knew what they were doing, you know, had the ability to make regular trips for whatever yeah. reason to a place like this. I'm not, again, I'm not even sure why you would go out to a place like that. Yeah, like what but... would prompt you to leave the mainland to go <laughs> all the way to the Falkland? Well, I mean, yeah, maybe they're getting sea life on the way and that was just a stopover point and they turn around and go back or something. Or maybe they're yeah. island hopping, you know, just for sustainability yeah. and something. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. So. Anyway, that was really cool. It Either way, it seems to indicate that John Strong was not the first person to set foot on the Falkland Islands. Yeah. So, which, you know, even though they're remote islands, it kind of makes sense. Every time you think you're the first person to have come there, <laughs> you're definitely almost not. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I was just looking up the Falkland Islands because I just wanted to see, like, how far away they really are from from the mainland. And they're, they're on the eastern side of South America. They're pretty far from the mainland, but, you know, they're not like super far inconceivably no not inconceivable right like if they were just if if you had explorers that just wanted to see what they could what they could find you know they could get there especially because they were the the native groups from this area were so good at seafaring now this is on the eastern side and it's kind of like across from argentina Mm -hmm. what is today argentina but down near down near the southern end so Yeah. yeah yeah Not impossible, but it's, I would love to see more evidence because it does seem like, 
like people researchers who get really really intense about the project that they're working on it's really hard for them to step back and see the big picture mm-hmm. you know like in their head they've already constructed the big picture and they're just looking for evidence to fit in that picture and it does kind of feel like that's happening a little bit here and maybe maybe that picture is correct maybe it is accurate that there were prehistoric peoples there earlier but it sure does seem like there needs to be a lot more corroborating evidence before it's actually accurate right i'm just not convinced based on what is reported (laughs) in this article maybe i'm too skeptical i don't know the spear point is interesting but i don't know i just personally would need more (laughs) All right. Well, you know who didn't need more? The Palestinian who laid down five million pieces of (laughs) ceramic to make this huge mosaic. We'll talk about that in a minute when we get back. I don't know. I think he did need more. (laughs) Give me more. More tiles. Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our Tee Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to the final segment and news article of episode 145 of the Archaeology Show. And as I said, we are headed over to... Palestine to talk about one of the largest floor mosaics ever found. Yeah. And it's super cool. You got to go to this article, arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology forward slash 145 or look down at your phone if you're listening to this on it. <laughs> the article's right there. Yeah. So the pictures are so cool, though. You yeah. definitely got to check them out. I yeah. I have a, a particular love for mosaics. I took an art history class yeah. in college and they a lot of what we talked about in that class was mosaics. So I, in particular, love looking at them. I think they're so pretty. So let's set the stage for where this is real quick. So this was part of, again, pronunciation of these <laughs> words. Oh, that one's not too bad. Yeah, but I don't know Umayyad? what a double M means. Umayyad. Um, um, Umayyad. I want to pronounce both M's. I don't think you should. Umayyad. U- U-M-M-A-Y-A-D. <laughs> this is why we need to ring Paul Zimmerman back oh, on. Oh, I know. We do. I can't he, wait. To, yeah. He knows how to pronounce these things. He does. So. <laughs> anyway, part of the Umayyad dynasty from 660 to 750 A.D. So... It legit was while the South Americans were looking at like, hey, are there islands out there? These guys were putting tiles down on the floor. <laughs> it's weird how corresponding I you know. Know, civilizations and that, that goes back to like our parallel series going yeah. for some of those. But yeah. it's like what's happening in this world and what's happening in this part of the world at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty neat. The palace, after it was abandoned for whatever reason, I didn't really research the palace itself, but when it was abandoned, it was forgotten for centuries, as mm-hmm. things are, uh, probably consumed by the desert or something like that as, yeah. as, the, as it happens, which just leads to a whole different idea that's running it through my head now, like broom technology in the desert areas may have must have just been amazing because it's like constant sweeping (laughs) or they just like learn to live with dust well they can't they'll be consumed in the season yeah that's true you have to get it out of your house (laughs) yeah so true if indiana jones taught me anything (laughs) is that a city can be consumed by the desert so and there's your pop culture reference for the day you lose the well of the souls okay (laughs) oh my god so anyway it was forgotten for centuries and it was rediscovered in the 19th century and explored in the 1930s Mm mm-hmm 
the mosaic was discovered during that time beneath all the dust that was there. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't imagine people just like walking through, you know, they discovered this area, you're walking through a, a room or whatever it is, and just like sweep away the dust beneath your feet or maybe you catch mm -hmm. a glimpse of something that looks like a floor and you start sweeping and it's just like this thing just keeps going yeah it just uncover this floor oh, it must have been that, amazing oh man yeah. yeah so anyway the entire palace covered a, uh, about 150 acres wow. which is it's huge ginormous it yeah huge there were baths an agricultural estate it was it was just a really big really so the, big thing so the building was obviously not that big but the whole the whole estate itself yeah, yeah took up that much space yeah so yeah. Five years ago, uh, the site was closed to visitors because it was open for visitation at, at the time. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't know where this comes from, but <laughs> yeah. a $12 million Japan-funded restoration effort was started. Like, why does Japan care Yeah, so where much? did Japan come from in yeah. this? It, but It could just be a, an archaeologist or a researcher from Japan that studies this area. Yeah, maybe. Was like, Raised hey, the money to get it done. Yeah, we need to do this. So yeah. they started raising money in their home country and, yeah. and got it done. I mean, that happens for the United States all the time. Yeah, totally. So... Entirely possible. Yep. So after five years of restoration, uh, Palestinian authorities just in, if you're listening to this in November of 2021, just recently in the last week or two, unveiled this floor mosaic. And uh, again, in modern times, this is in the West Bank of Jericho. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a hotly contested area right yeah. now. But uh, anyway, they're still moving forward with these kinds of things. And they unveiled this uh, floor mosaic that people can now go see if you're there. Mm -hmm. It covers, this is how big it is. This is just the mosaic. Mm -hmm. It covers 8,998 square feet. Yeah. I mean, that's like a McMansion on the East Coast. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's huge. how big that is. So, yeah. And it was at the... Um, Hisham Palace is the actual name of the actual palace. Mm -hmm. But yeah, 8,998 square feet. That is just ridiculous. Some of the images, they didn't really talk too much about that. But one of them was like a lion attacking a deer used to symbolize war, they think. Yeah. And many, many delicate floral and geometric designs. And uh, as I said at the end of the last segment... More than 5 million pieces of stone, all from Palestine, that have a natural and distinctive color were used to create this floor mosaic. So they call it, they use words like carpet and things like that to describe what this thing looks like. Because usually mosaic tiles, in order to make an image, are really small. Mm -hmm. You know, like a centimeter by centimeter, yeah. or half inch by half inch, or, or even smaller in some cases. Yep. And just the time it would have taken to not only make this, but the ability to see this image, obviously they would have had to have probably draw this image on something and go from something unless it just came out of somebody's head. Yeah. But to get this right and to have all the right colors of tiles and all the stuff, I mean, I can't even... There had to have been planning. Yeah. Like, I'm looking at it right now and it's so geometric. Like, you can't just sit down and pull these geometric shapes out of your head. You have to have a plan. Yeah. You have to know what, what color is coming next, what tile, what direction. Like, like, there's definitely no way to just pull this out of your head as you go. And... Yeah, I mean, there's circles. There's a circle in one of them. I mean, you've got to really put some planning yeah. in to make that happen. So, oh, and it's just so beautiful, though. I can't believe, too, like looking at one of the pictures that's kind of a top-down picture. I mean, how was this place? When it says forgotten, I don't think forgotten means that people didn't know it was there. I think they just didn't use it. Yeah. It was just left to its own devices for centuries yeah. until, you know, Europeans like to say, Oh, well, we I went there and explored it. it, therefore I discovered it. Yeah. But the, you know, the native, they're not like Bedouins, but like the native, uh, the native people of the time, the yeah. people that lived there, not even native in 1930s, but uh, 
The locals. The locals. They knew about it. They knew about it. Had to have known about well, it. They, they didn't care about it. Either they, they certainly knew there was a palace there. So. How can you not? Yeah, exactly. It's now like it covered in the jungle. It's like, you know. Mexico. Yeah, yeah, totally. And like, I'm there's, it's not just this floor that they found. There's, there's columns coming up out of the floor. Like That's what I'm saying. So like, it clearly is the, is part of a larger structure. So. Yeah. That is not going to be news to anybody. And now they might not have known how extensive the mosaic under all of the dust and debris that was probably on the floor was. Mm-hmm. I, I could see that being, you know, something new that was discovered. But certainly they knew there was a palace there. It just hadn't, it had just fallen out of use. But yeah, color wise, I'm just like blown away because with mosaics, you kind of think of that like indigo blue or la- the lapis lazuli, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that blue colors sort of what dominates the mosaics but this is a whole a whole mix of colors really a lot of blue but yeah. and the lighting in these photos isn't like super great so it's kind of hard to tell but i mean i'm seeing like red and green and and a lot of other colors too they really it's really a, a piece of artistry there's one shot that's like a top down of kind of a section of the area mm-hmm. and then there's another picture that is a side shot of really the whole the whole area and mm-hmm. just Getting a sense, I mean, almost 9,000 square feet, just getting a sense of the size of this, I just can imagine people congregating around there and walking around there mm-hmm. and just having these, you know, having these old conversations. And I wonder if uh, maybe this area was purely like for royal reasons or palace, or if maybe this, uh, you know, people would set up a little market here occasionally or, yeah, totally. or what the case would be. But I'm also curious, just from an engineering standpoint, what the floor looks like because you couldn't build this on sand you had to have developed the floor first when you have all these little tiny tiles you can't have them sinking in with your feet you know what does the construction look like on a floor like this is it stone do they do they construct a stone floor and then and then put the mosaic over the top of it like i have no idea what that even looks like yeah maybe i mean i do know I, I did a mosaic in one of my art classes back mm. in the day and you do need like a really strong flat foundation underneath sure. it and then you put the sort of grout or whatever it is that you're using to to hold the tiles together then you put that on top of that so because the, the grout can break so easily you need something really strong yeah. and, and flat really underneath it to, to hold it steady so there must be a really a really strong floor underneath it for sure to hold and it, it looks flat. Like, I don't see, like, buckling or any issues. Now, they could have restored that if there were issues Possibly. in the restoration project. But just looking at the pictures, I don't see any parts of it that look like they're uneven or broken. Yeah. So Either way, super cool. There's a huge dome structure built over the top of it mm-hmm. because there's no roof anymore. The columns are still there, but there's no roof on this structure. Uh, so it's just, like, open to the to the elements, which I can see that's how it could have been pretty easily buried by sand it looks using the human in one of the pictures as a scale that the roof if it were right on top of these columns which it may or may not have been that just may have been the top of the columns Mm -hmm. but if if the roof were right on top of the columns then it was probably about 13 14 feet high yeah give or take depending on how tall that person is (laughs) yeah that's still like a really big structure but without the roof there You've got these like 12 to 13 foot high columns and then the floor, I could, I mean, that would be pretty easily filled in by sand and then maybe you only see a few feet of the columns Mm -hmm. sticking out and you're like, I don't know what that is. Yeah, yeah. What's going on over there? Again, you know, something's there, but not really the extent of it. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. totally. But 
but it, it probably preserved it. So I guess in that respect, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't, they didn't mention, and you can't see in the pictures, there's only two of them, but you can't see where any sections were, say, looted, you know, oh, pulled yeah. up and taken away, yep. uh, hanging in somebody's, uh, some other palace. Yeah. So anyway, that's pretty cool. So, well, that's about it for this week. Again, if you have any concerns or questions about these, please send us a message. However, again, note that we are really just kind of talking about these with the same information you have. Yes. And neither of us are scholars in any of these subjects. <laughs> so we will get some things wrong, but we're just having a discussion from our own knowledge basis and a little bit of research. Yeah. And so. you know how the media is. They tend to kind of blow things out of proportion sometimes. So we just like mm-hmm. to take a realistic look at yeah. the way archaeology is being reported by the media. And that's why I was so skeptical of the last article and stuff like that. So that's yeah. kind of what we're trying to do here is just like bring a real archaeologist viewpoint, even though we don't have knowledge of these topics. Hopefully we can still like right. be realistic about what they're saying and what they're talking about. All right. Well, with that, we'll see you next week. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen.